This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Bud Hotel in Moscow, Russia. <laughs> and from, uh, my, my, it sounds rather lame, just my kitchen counter in boring West Hollywood, California, Roger, it's the Men in Blazers podcast. Oh, Dave, here in Moscow, reporting for duty, Comrade Rog. <laughs> you've turned, you've turned, <laughs> gone to the other side. Pro fashion tip, straight from the Moscow subway. Do you want one? Yeah, go. Look at the summer. Here's a prediction. It's going to be big men with tiny briefcases. Oh. The, the more powerful, I think, you want to be seen to be in Moscow the tinier the briefcase you actually carry around the subway with you. It's gen- there's like these roided guys, enormous men with tiny in-scale briefcases. And uh, I've sent J-dubs tentatively to ask them what have they got inside. And it seems 70% of the men, the big men with tiny briefcases on the Moscow subway, 70% of them just have severed fingers in there. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Or something's worse severed. The Russian metro, the Moscow metro, though, looks beautiful, Rog. It's stunning. There's all mosaics of, like, they had Stalin, but they chipped him away, replaced him with Lenin, and then they replaced Lenin with somebody else. And they're, like, the the complete bastardization of the original mosaic. It makes everybody faintly look like you, Dave. Just some powerful bald visibly <laughs> staring down at you. They are gorgeous. This city, as I said on the last pod, has been so gussied up. This is such a propaganda coup. I say the Russian World Cup, and J-Dubs and I went to a game last night, Brazil-Serbia. It's all a bit weird. All a bit weird. You like walk into the stadium, and there's all these young women on kind of like lifeguard, these high chairs every hundred yards spread along the, the roadway into the stadium with bullhorns and they kind of shout out, Welcome to Russia! Beautiful Russia! Like, like it's a scene from The Handmaid's Tale if Gilead ever got the World Cup, which I think they will in 2030. And, and the other thing that was eerie, Dave, and I know we want to get to England, we've got to get to England because the game was just that bloody good. But inside the stadium, which is magnificent, and I will say there was more atmosphere for Brazil, oddly, than there was in Brazil when we went to the Copa das Copas, where the World Cup, you'll agree, do you remember it felt so corporate inside the stadium? Well, I mean, all World Cups sort of feel like that in recent years, Rog. Ever since, ever since 94 was the last one that felt football-y, and that was football-y with a lot of people not understanding what was going on. But World Cup games do feel quite corporate, but this sounds like it's a step further. This one, you kind of have to love football, Davo, to want to schlep to Moscow to cheer for your team. And J-Dubs and I were like immersed in the, in the Brazil end. And we sat behind a couple of hilarious fans. One who was wearing a Neymar shirt. He looked a bit like a, a Brazilian, and I should post photos of him, a Brazilian Ronnie from Jersey Shore. He was just so looking for a fight the whole time. The other was wearing a Coutinho jersey. And they both sat in front of us. And social media for the entire 90 minutes. I mean, Neymar's FaceTime game was so strong. He spent the whole game just FaceTiming every friend of his from back home. People on motorbikes, some children, more children, possibly other children, but in other places. I mean, then there was women. He he spent some time FaceTiming with a dog for an extended period of time. While Coutinho was just recording personal messages for every single WhatsApp name in his contact list. Both of them 
never watched a minute of the game. I mean, they, they went to a game so they could FaceTime people to tell them they were at a game they didn't actually watch. Yet their, em, their emoji creativity, it never tired. And I'll just say, modern football, Dave, I'm at the World Cup. Who's playing again? I can't stand that. Same thing that people do at like uh, concerts. They just spend the whole time recording and looking at it through their phone, getting a suboptimal concert experience. And the eerie thing was the cell service at the stadium was the single best we've ever experienced. You know, Putin, that propaganda cue, more than any sports owner, he's like, get that cell reception right. I need people to tell the world that they are here in Russia and having the time of their life. And that was it. As, the, as we saw in Kalingrad tonight, David, we should get to the football. Absolutely. We've got a packed show. We're going to talk about the England-Belgium game that wrapped up minutes before recording this podcast. I needed a nap. <laughs> I really did need a nap, Rog. So it was very convenient. We marvel at defending champion Germany's group stage exit. Did it really happen? It did. They're really gone. It, I, it, is, it could be like a horror movie where suddenly they, in the, it'll be the semi-finals and you'll, you'll see Germany versus Brazil and you'll be like, we're back. <laughs> it'll be just like that. Um, anyway, we marvel at their... Uh, purported exit and we relive the emotional roller coaster that was Argentina's triumph over Nigeria. So the football Rog. Oh, this has been the best World Cup of my lifetime. It really has. And I want to raise this bud to the teams who've made it so. All those that we've lauded in defeat. They've departed. We've declared they can leave with their heads held high. Morocco, Peru, oh Peru, Nigeria, Iran, my beautiful Iceland. And of course the most mighty of all, South Korea. They've made this World Cup, Dave, with their positive, buccaneering, ambitious, expansive, tenacious play. No two banks of four part the bus at this bloody World Cup. I think we're all richer for it, Bud Fam, Blood Fam. So I'm raising this to the losers, the losers who still won. Talking of losers who still won or, uh, or losers who still advance, England, nil. Uh, Belgium won, Rod. La Belgica, uh, they go through a goal from Adnan Yanisai that greatly amused the British tabloids. Man United flop, scores against England. Uh, Belgium go through as the, uh, the leading team in Group G. Uh, might have the tougher path. They play against Japan and then go up against the winner of Brazil-Mexico, uh, assuming they win. England uh, are going to face Colombia uh, on Tuesday, Rog, and a slightly easier part of the draw if they get through that game. Yeah, but this game, Davo, bit of a disgrace for fans who, like both of us, have long awaited this game. We etched this one into our date books when the World Cup draw happened. I mean, I felt for England fans more than anything who've flown, flown into Kalingrad, which is not the easiest place in the world <laughs> to kill time. It was just all of it felt wrong, wrong, wrong. I said as it was happening to J-Dubs, it was just like the fate orgasm of World Cup games with both teams afterwards just saying, that was for real, right? That was a real orgasm. You didn't fake yours, did you? I'm not even sure they tried to fake one. I'm not even sure they just tried to have them. It was, sort of, <laughs> it was just sort of like very casual foreplay for 90-plus uh, for minutes. I mean, look, you can't really blame Gareth Southgate and Roberto Martinez. They played almost entirely reserves. You know, a lot of these players, you know, needed to get some minutes out in the field. It's still a lot of tournament to go if you're going to advance far. There is this pesky yellow card accumulation rule in this tournament that is, 
you know, any two before the semifinals and you miss the next game. It's just a very, remember they changed it last time, yeah. Rog? And it, it's pesky. And it means that teams are going to be cautious in this kind of situation because they don't want to pick up yellow cards. They don't want to pick up injuries. And I think that both teams did go out there and try to win. I don't think anybody tried to lose. I think that the 22 players on the field and the subs who came in wanted to go and win the game. You think? Yes, I do. You've got Belgian manager, our friend, Roberto Martinez, before the game, minutes before the game, saying, we want to perform well, but the priority is not to win. That's the exact same philosophy he had at Everton. Yeah, but I think what he's saying there is that he wants a good performance more than a win. That helps him that if it's a good performance in defeat, he can still take something positive out of the game. Yeah, but he 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 fielded a B team and Gareth Southgate countered by, well, playing 4D chess. He fielded Gary Cahill and Phil Jones, who, to me, they're like a bizarro world David Robinson and Tim Duncan. They're like the Towers of No Power. And I just wonder what it was like for these elite footballers. I mean, we've spent time with elite footballers. They live to compete at the highest level. This must, pre-game, Davo, have synapsed some wires in some brains there. I don't think anybody was trying to lose this game. I really don't think that. And, and we, we have seen World Cup games which have been, like... Uh, appallingly match fixy, and I don't think this was that. I just think it was two teams without the amount of quality to really beat each other, except for one moment from Adnan Yenisai. There could have been more goals in the game at both ends. Um, there weren't, and I think it's almost like a preseason game. That was almost like a preseason exhibition game. It felt like the Community Shield. It felt like an all-star game. It was weird to watch. You were exactly right. I, you've said it better. I, to me, it was like the experience of watching was like when you, for work, have to tape a mid-table late-season game where there's no point to it, and then someone tells you the score before you get to watch it on your DVR, but you have to watch it anyway, and your emotional investment's just not there as a spectator, but you watch it anyway. You watch it with a packet of Doritos and some Ben & Jerry's and a bottle of Malbec late at night, but it's like the whole point of it as a fan is lost. But you've said it. It felt pre-season. It felt ICC. It felt, you know, like a... Um, just a friendly game and who gave a crap in this game I was trying to work out I was watching hard I thought Fellaini I thought Fellaini tried so hard 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 all game to get that red card that he's dreamt of getting in a World Cup game since he was a little child in Flanders and also for me Vardy tried because you know like rat impulse and feral animals they don't have free will but apart from that who really tried David I think Jordan Pickford tried very hard. Cute little Jordan Pickford. <laughs> no one in world football looks smaller when he's flying through midair than Jordan Pickford. There are like elite acrobats with what's that famous Kirov Russian circus who are like those child acrobats stunted at somewhere sort of frozen in time at the age of 11 who have more length as they're diving uh, than Jordan Pickford. How dare you? How dare you? He's the Muggsy Boogs of goalkeepers, David. Just because he's tiny, he can still dunk the basketball. I'm not going to have you. I'm not going to have that. It's not that he's tiny. It's that when he's diving, he looks quite big when he's standing in goal. But when he dives, (laughs) he just immediately sort of transforms into somebody who's very tiny. Mummy who shrunk the goalkeeper. Yes. In his defence, David, in Jordan Pickford's defence, no one was meant to be playing. Bro, that's what he shouted at Yanishai as he fired that shot. He's like, bro, whenever you're playing chill games, friendly games, pickup games, there's always one guy who can't stick to the game plan, the rules of the game. And it was Yanishai. And I've got to say, 
you can't begrudge him. I mean, that gentleman has had just a dizzying career of just aspirational highs as the one jewel in the David Moyes darkness. Uh, and then just a disintegration and a dis- uh, disappearance. I- I'm happy for Yanishan. You could see that when he scored his joy with Lukaku on the sideline. Uh, I, di- I got slightly more joy from watching your man, Bats, just, <laughs> God, just pump that ball off the post in celebration right into his own face. Made for men in blazers. He, uh, in celebration, if you didn't see it, he boots the ball right, trying to hit it into the goal. He accidentally hits the goalpost and it rebounds <laughs> off and hits him a flush in the face. It was the most English moment of all time. We, we could do a whole season of Men in Blazers just replaying that one clip, David. We really, really could. By the way, earlier, when you said in Jordan Pickford's defence, I thought you were just going to say Gary Cahill and Phil Jones. <laughs> the Towers of Power. And, you know, uh, for bats, sometimes a game does get the highlight it deserves. And that was that one because the game then kind of fell into a coma. I never thought I would say this, but my God, that game could have done with some Andy Carroll for that last 15 minutes. Here's the question. You're an optimist. You love England. So I'm going to hand it to you. What did we learn and was it all worth it for Gareth Southgate? This is what we learned is we better stay injury free uh, through the last 16 game if we win it because... You know, we knew that Belgium had more depth going into this tournament than England. Belgium are a fantastic squad. We knew England had a had sort of, you know, lack depth. You saw the difference without Henderson and Lingard uh, in midfield for England. You just lost all that pace. You lost those incisive uh, passes. I thought when Harry Maguire came on, he looked different class. Um, you know, so great to see an England centre-back, you know, advancing up the field with his ball at his feet, beating men. Um but we saw a lot of things we knew. Ruben Loftus-Cheek, great with the ball at his feet, great running with the ball, glides past defenders, has no final uh, ball today. He's scared to shoot. I think you saw that, like, the step down that Vardy and Rashford remain uh, from Harry Kane. I think probably this was a, the, the person who had the best game for England today was Raheem Sterling. Suddenly, nobody's going to be making noise about mm-hmm. uh, Rashford filling in for Sterling. So this was a great moment for Sterling. And we missed hugely the set-piece delivery of Kieran Trippier. Yes. England had, what, five, six, seven corners in this game? They probably would have put seven past them if, if Kieran Trippier had been knocking them in. I, I was really happy for Arnold to watch a young man who's worked so bloody hard get a start that must have been thrilling. But nerves definitely seem to disin- disintegrate. Even something that he is so unbelievably blessed uh, with skill-wise, which is set-piece delivery. Um, and hopefully, you know, for me, that was like one of the only positives I saw. Hopefully he will have uh, had the nerves of playing World Cup football kind of taken out of his system now and could possibly play a role. Um, I was going to say get deeper into the tournament. I do not know how much deeper into the tournament this England team are going to get. I mean, one of the questions going in was, yes, we smashed Tunisia, kind of. Yes, we disintegrated Panama. Yes, we really did. But England have not yet played a top flight team. We don't know what weight class they're really boxing at, and we still don't. And this is what I thought, Davo. To me, the whole thing was bonkers. There is nothing good about wanting to play Colombia to avoid a putative quarterfinal against Brazil that may not even happen because Mexico could top Brazil. But to me, that's just world is flat thinking. Mexico are good. They can beat Brazil. Colombia, with or without James, can be a handful. And here's the stat that, that, that truly kills me. I mean, England have never beaten a team higher than them in the FIFA rankings 
since uh, Argentina 16 years ago in Sapporo. I was there. We were outplayed so terribly that night. I hope we don't ever beat a team playing like that again. We've got to get you here, though, David, because we only win when you're there. Here's a list of countries. Daniel Story put it together, the journalist, that England have beaten during the last four World Cups. Are you ready for this list? Yeah. It's Tunisia, Panama, Slovenia, Paraguay, Trinidad and Tobago. And we both would know they're a very good team, Trinidad and Tobago, and then also Ecuador. It's really, I mean... I love all of those countries. Not impressive. Yeah, but this is, you're talking of the history. I know people love to roll out the stats. This is, you know, five England players who were there in 2014. You know, really, I think only one of them is actually playing, expected to start in the next game. So England are a very, very, very different team um, than they were before. It might not make any difference at all. This is the way I view it, is I think you've got 16 teams going into the uh, knockout stages of this tournament. And I think every single one of these teams has got to be looking around their dressing room. They've got to be looking at the rest of the draw. And they've got to be thinking, we could actually win this thing. Because no one has set this tournament on fire. Everyone has flaws. And no, I don't think that England are, they may be favourites against Colombia with the bookmakers. Uh, but that's partly because so much money will be put on them in, in, in the UK. But if they are like favourites a little bit on paper, it's not by much. You could see that game being played 10 times and having 10 very different results. And I think everything's going to be close. It's going to come down. This is what, why this is a beautiful World Cup. This is a wide open World Cup that anybody can take. I love your thinking. The one thing that gives me a caveat from an England perspective and to be candid from a Belgian perspective, I mean, both teams made this game meaningless. Um, and I do wonder whether that's going to come back to haunt them. I mean, Roberto is not, he's many things. And I, many things that are wonderful but he's not an experienced international manager. He's not a manager of an experience of what it takes to lead a team through that World Cup odyssey. Um, it's not clear to me that World Cup form is something you can turn on and off. You can start badly, as Italy have done, as Brazil have done in early stages of World Cups, France have done, and gone on to strengthen and find their form. But you can't kind of like turn it on and off in the middle of a, uh, of a campaign. The only asterisk I'll put on that, Rog, is that this was not like this was the team that are going to go and play against Colombia who came out here and didn't play very well. This was a completely different football team. Pickford was there. Maguire came on for a half. But that was pretty much it. Like nobody else other than Rashford and, and Loftus-Cheek who might come on as subs. Who knows? It could backfire. You know, betting against England at this stage, like you're likely to win. Like that is the, that, that, that is the easy bet because they lose – in the last 16, they, they draw, they lose on penalties, they draw, lose on penalties, or lose in the quarterfinals. It would be, oh, well, he made the mistake what he did. It's only really if they make it to the semifinals that's got to be a much, much harder proposition that anybody's going to say that Gareth Southgate did the right thing. Well, there were moments tonight where we had to sit through that drudgery uh, where I thought, wow, neutrals going to be cheering for Japan and Colombia uh, in those two games. This is the World Cup of Schadenfreude. I hope those neutrals didn't watch Japan passing the ball sideways. <laughs> Jesus. Let's talk about something that bonds us, Davo. The defeat, the defenestration, the shock, the twist of Germany. Of Germany. Yes, this is not science fiction. We're not making this up. Pinch me, J-Dubs. Did this really happen? The defending champions, number one in the FIFA ranking, now zero and two on Russian invasions, out for the first time ever, ever 
ever after the group stage. 16 consecutive bloody World Cups. David, did it really happen? Yes, Rose, this is as shocking as a potential England World Cup win. What, what would seem <laughs> less likely before this tournament? England winning the World Cup or Germany going out in the group stage? I think, I think England winning the World Cup would seem more likely before this tournament. This is the biggest shock of all time. Germany, Germany, simply do not do this in a World Cup, Rog, in Europe, next door to them, in what they once considered Lebensraum, their own <laughs> land. And home, on home turf. On home turf. I mean, for, for new GFOPs, to put this into context, this is, this is kind of like the New England Patriots going 4-12 and 12 and just failing to make the playoffs uh, and losing both games to the Jets in the process with flaccid Tom Brady. That, 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 is, that is how unthinkable uh, what we witnessed is. What, what did you feel emotionally, David? Because it, it wasn't Schadenfreude for me. It wasn't. It was, it was more just pure Ned Stark shock and astonishment. I mean, this was a plot twist. You know, we've never seen this in our lifetimes, Germany being eliminated in a group stage. It's like... It's like the usual suspects plot twist. It's like the crying game. It's like Planet of the Bloody Apes. It's, I, I, I think I tweeted it. It's something that makes the Red Wedding seem just like a normal, pretty boring, run-of-the-mill nuptial ceremony in comparison. I, I was gobsmacked. What was it like for you? It sort of vindicates a worldview that football is ultimately, football will find you out. And this German team had been existing on reputation for a very, very long time. They've looked horrible coming into this tournament bringing Manuel Neuer back when he hasn't really played all year seemed an act of desperation. And they seemed out of sync all over, dropping Leroy Sane, the best young player, I would say, in Europe this past season, um, is was sort of an act of arrogance. And no Julian Green either. Yeah, the whole thing seemed to... Oh, Julian. The whole thing <laughs> seemed to... Uh, you know, they got they got found out. You know, Jogi Lowe's had that job a long time. You know, the team just got, like, very you know, casual, even their reaction to losing, it was like, we're Germany, we cannot possibly lose. This is unfair. This is not a World Cup without us. We are the Meister. Um, it is <laughs> a Meister. Meister, we're the World Cup Meister. <laughs> and I felt vindicated for an opinion that I never actually had, that they were going to get out of the group stage. But I felt somewhat vindicated. I, I feel it's good for football. It's good for the World Cup. It's not like Germany and go back and have to soul search and think, what's this wrong with the German football system? You know, they're, everything's fine in Germany. They're going to they're gonna go back and they're going to bring through like 750 young players um, who are as good as Leroy Sané, as good as, you know, anybody who we could find in England and America. They don't seem to have a striker right now. They don't have a Harry Kane. That's the player they seem to be, you know, really sort of wish they had over there. Yeah, I mean, 28 shots, David, 28 shots, but they couldn't beat Cho Hyun Wu. I mean, they, they did. They look naive. They look lost, desperately trying to cross the ball for headers, like like David Moyes United. I mean, floundering all too mortal at the end. You you know how sometimes we say about teams who are normally mid-table who get caught up in a relegation battle just are not mentally equipped for the relegation battle. Germany looked like a team that they couldn't believe this was happening to them, and they were just drowning. And even though they knew how to swim, they forgot how to swim. I mean, that, the, the, the irony, the drama of the pulse-stopping Tony Cruz game winner that sunk Sweden, all for naught now, as was the arrogant fisticuffs uh, that ensued when the German coaching staff uh, taunted the Swedes who did get through in the end, at the end of the game, thrown back in their face, that karma 
does exist, people. Not enough, but it does exist. I say, in that group, huge credit to South Korea. Oh my God, delirious joy, bringing it and then some in a game that still saw them eliminated, but they still became the new St. Zuzi. I, I adore the South Korean team. I love how they go about their work. I wish that nation glory in the years to come. I mean, it's great, truly great for football when there's an Asian team that the region can believe in. Um, JP Kim, GFOP, wrote on Facebook to us, to all my Mexican homeboys out there, thank you in Korean, is gomsa homnida denada. I, d- I do wonder, Dave, one of the headlines in the German paper this morning, speechless. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, there's a, there's a fundamental um, security to German football. This is not, I mean, the fundamentals are there. The youth development is there. The talent is there. Um, there was complacency here. There's no doubt there was arrogance. Uh, defending champions go out in the group stage all the time. France, 2002, Italy, 2010, Spain, 2014, Germany now, 2018. And the US, I know you're listening, US, be careful in 26. After we win it in 2022, we don't want to do a Germany and crash out at the group stage. But will this do anything to the myth of German football? Its self-image is invincible. You know, the Bundesliga is a bit in decline. There's an uncertainty creeping in. Um, is it just a matter of oh, a change in leadership? We'll do everything. Please bring Jurgen Klinsmann back, right? Or is it? Will it? Will it dent the self-image? Well, in the, the the story of German football, written by some uh, you know young GFOP circa two thousand and you know forty, <laughs> certainly this World Cup two thousand eighteen Rogue Nation two thousand eighteen will be the end of a chapter of German dominance in football and. Be- potentially the beginning of a new chapter, but it's certainly the end of a chapter. You can't make all of those jokes anymore about like all the teams play and then Germany end up in the final because, you know, this is a big miss and people's history sort of starts with the present before it goes back to, to, to anybody, to anywhere else. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's gonna, it's, it's ended that myth of dominance. I did love the Mexican fans surrounding the South Korean embassy in Mexico City, lifting the South Korean ambassador onto their shoulders. What scenes? Making him down a tequila shot and singing. I mean, they they sang, our Korean brother, you are now Mexican. It is South Korea and Mexico, two countries on the White House maybe invade list. But my God, it was genuinely a delirious sight. It is the greatest World Cup ever. It really is. And we've got a, I've got a clap for Vladimir Putin. He's, he's hired the greatest script writers. Um, I, by the way, this game was the moment that it dawned on me slowly, but then it dawned on me. Holy crap. Russia might win this whole enchilada, right? They could do. They stand a chance with everybody else. <laughs> they stand a chance, Rod. With that win for South Korea over Germany, Sweden advances, Rod, with their own 3-0 win over Mexico. Some very nervous... Uh, moments for uh, all Mexicans in Mexico, in the United States and in Russia while that was going on, uh, Rog. Tough for me to be too happy to Sweden after their capitulation against Germany in the second round of matches and, frankly, their eagerness to show the Germans the way to the ball bearing factories during the Second World War. But um, you'll, you'll never forgive them, will you? I'll never forgive Sweden for their neutrality I, uh, with heavy inverted commas. <laughs> I thought they were phenomenal in this game. And now the World Cup of Anxiety does return for Mexico ahead of, I guess, their Super Bowl, the round of 16, the cursed game. 
where they'll now only go and play Brazil in Samara. Oh, and in this one against a positive Sweden, who almost seem freed, freed by the loss of the ego of Zlatan. And I do wonder how he felt watching Juan Carlos Osorio's team. They couldn't find the pass in the final third. They also couldn't live with Sweden's positivity tactically with their two strikers. And I'll say, like, I'll look ahead to Monday's game and we have, you and I have a live show in Brooklyn right afterwards. And I do feel a bit of trepidation for Mexico lining up against Gabriel Jesus uh, and Philippe Coutinho on Monday. But oh, Mexico's round of 16 curse may be even more of a challenge than Brazil themselves. The head games, the head games, they're going to be worse in that locker room pre-game than, than really in that movie Memento. I can't think of anything can't think of anything worse than being a Mexican footballer, knowing you have the ability to beat anyone. But that round of 16 game, it must be like being at the base of Everest, David. Yeah, but Rog, they've already beaten Germany in their opening game at this World Cup. They have a chance to beat Germany and Brazil at a World Cup. Mexico-Brazil, what a fixture that's going to be. A game made for colour television, Rog. Just the colours. It's just going to be a kaleidoscope of football. I cannot wait for that game of football. I'm excited. And I actually think Mexico have got a chance. Do it for London. Do it for London. Yeah, not the way they played against Sweden, but I do think they stand uh, a chance, Rog. Uh, and then the other remarkable game uh, since we last potted, Rog, Argentina 2, Nigeria 1. <laughs> Heartbreak uh, for those Super Eagles, Rog. They really played fantastic football uh, at this World Cup. Very tough on them to end up uh, going home. Uh, and Argentina, somehow, we don't really know how they're selecting the team. It seems that they have to ask Messi who they can substitute and who they can bring on, but they found a way to win 2-1. It's almost Shakespearean watching Lionel Messi at this World Cup. You, you think of Othello, Macbeth, Lionel Messi. I mean, just a character who knows he's doomed and can do nothing to change that fate apart from trying to face it with the nobility of Ralph Wiggum. I mean, what, what a game, Davo. In the 14th minute, under all that pressure, with the world watching, more importantly for him probably, the sponsors watching, he delivered. He delivered one of the most exquisite goals in context that this World Cup has seen. And you could just, like, see the joy. It was a psychic release, Davo. I mean, he... He had, under enormous pressure, pulled down a long ball with the deftest chest control, knocking it calmly, simply, efficiently in front of him at the highest of speeds and then blasting the ball home um, with his weaker foot. It was a stunning moment. I, I interviewed a hero of mine, the Uruguayan poet Eduardo Galeano, once before his death. And he, he told me at the time, he said, Diego Maradona, he played as if the ball was glued to his shoe. But Lionel Messi, he played as if that ball was stuck inside his sock. And when you watch that goal, those three touches, thigh, foot, finish, you really understand what Galliano meant. It was really, it was a work of art. It was. You, you, here's the thing about Messi that I adore. He makes at his best the complex look simple. And then you watch Neymar, as J-Dubs and I did at Spartak Stadium, and he struggles to make the simple so utterly complex. And you appreciate Messi all the more. And you never take it for granted that we're alive as fans 
while he's playing. But what you said earlier, you've got to credit Nigeria because they fought their way back into this game with the effervescence that I've only really seen when I've shaken up a can of Fresca and then pulled a tab. And it felt, again, just like doom. It felt doom. When it was 1-1, did you feel that Argentina were going to do it? Yeah, I always felt that they had a goal in them, but they were struggling. They were struggling mightily. You know, Mascherano, frankly, could have been called for that handball. Yeah. It was not as automatic as some of the commentators that I heard sort of made out. You've seen that given, um, even by very, very experienced referees. Um, So I was a little worried for them at that point. But then they ultimately found a way to go down the other end and, and find a goal from a fairly unlikely source. Yeah, I mean, it was like watching Sunday Arthur Gaines hit a bucket to sink LeBron uh, way back. I can't think of him. I was trying to think of a more unlikely game winner, Dave. But Rojo charging away in one up for, for once with Messi riding his back <laughs> as Argentina have ridden Lionel's back for so long and so often. And we've got to, we've got to, we've got to talk about Maradona, the man who says that he had a sore neck because he binged on white wine. You know, there's two schools of thought. It's either hilarious watching all these cutaways or it's truly dark watching these cutaways. To me, it seems to be if you, if you knew him as the player, the impudent street urchin turned prince, then there's a certain sadness to see him act in, in these darkest of ways. Uh, if you didn't know him, you just think he's like this hilarious kind of like plastic surgery dude who... Who, who looks like Jocelyn Willenstein, the Catwoman, if she was good at football, then it's vaguely hilarious. What, what, what do you think about it, David? He's like one of those footballers who was so extraordinary in life, did such extraordinary things, that real life must be kind of boring for him. And the only thing he can possibly do is enhance that life with, you know, perhaps some substances, perhaps some crazy behavior, perhaps... Some herbal life. Yeah, perhaps sort of everything else. But uh, I still think he's a wonderful, colorful character in the world's game. I love the fact that Maradona is as he is, rather than just another guy sitting there in a blazer, no offense, Rog, um, uh, wearing to either of us, and <laughs> sort of just being another stiff in a suit with the Argentinian Football uh, Association. Just watching him, it reminds me of Jack Nicholson uh, as Frank Costello and The Departed in those kind of like uh, heavily coked up scenes, but Argentinian with an Hublot watch on, on both wrists. It's like if Lenny Dykstra and Joe Namath had an Argentinian baby. He's either an early investor in, in Giphy and he wants to give the world tons of memes or he's just like, I don't care. I'm going to watch Argentina because I love them and, and I'm just going to blow rails. The, the one thing that's, that's fascinating, I mean, you watch Messi, you've still got Higuain, Di Maria, Mascherano, that big old baby looking Mascherano, all three so useless. They're like anchors dragging down the team. And when I watch... Maradona, I remember 1986, where he was playing on a similarly terrible Argentinian team and he dragged them single-handedly, often using his hands, into the final. But in that final, he ran mostly as a decoy to create space for his teammates, knowing everyone would move with him. And what I don't understand about Lionel Messi, he should try and do some of that. He's trying so hard to take it all on himself, take that ball, take them on as that incredible photograph that made all the world back pages of him surrounded by four uh, Nigerians in the closest of quarters. It was like watching Big Sam at the pie buffet table when there's three pies. No one was getting that pie off Big Sam. No one was getting that ball off Lionel Messi. But you know, there needs to be teammates that can take advantage of the space that Messi can create with some decoy runs. I have to believe, I have to believe that they can do France, David. 
because I cannot, I cannot cope with another tournament and more messy tears. Ah, oh, Rod, time to look ahead and select our Meister of the Day. No World Cup football tomorrow, Rod, so you're going MLS. Oh, I am. I'm also going home, mate. J-Dubs and I are bidding farewell. We've got, we went to a Moldovan restaurant today that was in the back of the Moldovan embassy. Any GFOPs who are coming to, uh, to Moscow for more World Cup action, find the Moldovan embassy, find this restaurant. It's got a great name. It's called Moldova. And it is amazing. I mean, I've only known Moldova as the centre of the heroin import into Europe. But I've got to say, the, the sausages that I had and the sweet grapes, Moldova restaurant, Moldova restaurant. My Meister of the day, let me have my shot of Jägermeister, which I'm, which I'm getting. I'm necking it back. <laughs> you know, Jägermeister tastes even better now Germany are knocked out of the World Cup than it did before. I didn't think that was possible. Yeah, I'm sure. My Meister of the day is a man, you might not have heard of him, but he's a young up-and-comer in MLS, and his name is Wayne Rooney. Oh, Rod. He's arrived today in D.C. Complete surprise. Wasn't rumoured, wasn't talked about for the last seven months. He's arrived. Part of me is sad, you know, that he his season back at his childhood club, Everton, was a reminder that romance in football, that, you know, happiness in football is a, is a hard thing. Uh, to kind of dreams in football hard to make real because that dream did become a bit of a nightmare. I mean, bizarrely, he was still a standout player of Everton's awful, awful season. We'll always have that West Ham goal. We'll always have the Derby penalty. But now he's come to DC United to be the face of their new stadium opening July 14th, Audi Field. Um, He's got a guaranteed contract through the 2020 season. Sources say five million dollars on that contract you know how is he going to do you think of David Beckham pinging passes without ever really having to leave the center circle those days in MLS over you know there's these 19 20 year olds from South Central America Miguel Almiron Ezekiel Barco Diego Rossi Jesus Medina Wayne Rooney is not any of those players but he's arrived on a club that have had a terrible start to the season They're a bad team right now. Wayne will love that. He's used to bad teams from his final season at Everton. And frankly, his time at United at the end under LVG and Moyes. Um, The thought of him hanging out with Ovi and Mallory Pugh, it just makes my heart sore. Beers with Ovi and Wayne Rooney, I want in on that. I, I will say, DC need to learn the lesson about Steven Gerrard, who never really understood LA. The 405 to the 91, I don't know where they am. If they can settle Wayne off the field, he will settle himself on it. He'll also thrive in the anonymity that MLS provides players off the field. I think it will delight and, and bring a true joy to him. So I'm going to raise my Jägermeister um, to Wayne, to DC, to DC United, returning to the glory days of Echeverry and Moreno. Okay, my Meister of the Day from a team that hasn't peaked yet, Rog. And they're playing Argentina and Lionel Messi Saturday at 10 a.m. I'm actually cheering for France in this tournament, Rog. It's very yeah. weird. You know, I'm just very, very pro-French all of a sudden. You know I love a bit of line bling, Rog. I like the decision twos. Antoine Griezmann in this one. I cannot wait to watch this game. I want to see some goal celebrations from the, the little Frenchman. I do believe, FIFA, if you're listening, stop this with the yellow card uh, kind of tiebreaker crap. It's a disgrace. Just have... Goal celebrations be the ultimate decider in a tie-break situation. 
dance off, dance off, dance your pants off. Football, it will always, it will always, it will, it will, its beauty will never stale. Dave, a quick one. July second, when I will next see you, we're returning home to America, to the joyous America, where I will activate as a sleeper cell. And on July second, Brooklyn. The musical of Williamsburg, one of my favourite venues in the city, Men in Blazers, is going to play with Bradley Wright Phillips. Oh, BWP. Paul Carr, who's going to come and blow our mind like days of old, Dave. Oh, wow. And one of my family members may join us on stage. I cannot tell you which family member. There's, a, there's about three or four seats left. They're available on meninblazers.com. Come kick off July 4th weekend in the finest of ways. We then head to two sold-out shows in Philly and Boston right afterwards. We really can't wait. Oh, do I need to bring a family member as well? Because I hadn't accounted for this. Would you bring Trevor? <laughs> yeah, bring the dad. <laughs> bring Trevor. Uh, wonderful. Okay, follow us on Twitter, at Men in Blazers, at Embassy Davies, at Roger Bennett, on Instagram, at Men in Blazers, at Embassy underscore Davies, on Facebook, uh, Men in Blazers. You can always send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. You can always email us at meninblazers at gmail.com. Vendor.rog. War pig! Who wants to sex with Dumbo? I like snacks and Moldavian food. Balls win, balls win. Take that, Gloria. Balls lose. To Tweed. Abrigado, rock on, mate. Kung fu fight in America. And remember, if you're a big man, carry a tiny briefcase. Love you, Davo. Love you, Rog. Can't wait to be back with you, America.